This episode is sponsored by Anchor.fm. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. Basically, it's free. Secondly, there's creation tools that allow you to record and also edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And after which, Anchor will automatically distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can also make money from your podcast with literally no minimum listenership. So it's everything you basically need in a podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started today. pretty good you know well, i uh should i like uh you know do an introduction yeah. like you want introduction sure. first? and what is real is real art and like just let's go okay is real is real art oh that is my instagram name uh, we just chose that can't even like look at a, a recording camera and say why that name was chosen all I can say is that uh, it was particularly funny in a circumstantial situation, and we were talking about, like, is is it real or is it not? So is it real? It's is real art, you know? It, it's real. Um, so it goes for, like, any art, and it was pertaining to psychedelic art specifically. So it was, like, a really long, like, uh, hilarious circumstance, and... Uh, semi-psychedelic ordeal let's put it that way for such a psychedelic art um, and that's what primarily all the instagram's about it's all just about um, uh, just the adventures of how the art was created kind of um, uh, that's just my opinion at least i'm i'm a pretty regular dude i don't do too much but um, why uh, questioning the real like i don't get that why question the real um, uh, well it's like that's the whole thing about psychedelics. Like you're getting, you're intentionally going into a cognitive space where you're going to question reality and alter your perception on what is real and how you perceive reality itself. With certain states of consciousness, desire to perceive certain things. I've felt and perceived certain things from certain states of consciousness, like uh. It's a strange, a strange opening statement, but it's going to be a radical statement. But I believe everybody, when they take psilocybin mushrooms, should make a finger paint. And it sounds kind of as absurd and a little bit childish at first, but I firmly believe every person deep, 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 deep down has this understanding of what's called the language of art. And it's the five character language, right? There's a a horizontal, a vertical, a diagonal, a dot, and an arc. And this is the language of art. It's the language that constitutes every shape in this entire space, right? And not only every shape here, but in every language that we write with. It's the abstraction that we as human beings use to create things within our space, you know, how to transmute things into art. Anything we craft is a piece of art. So it's like 
if when someone takes psilocybin mushrooms, I feel like it brings us to this particular creative space and it's particularly tribal. It's deep, it's, it's rooted in ancestral heritage to use this language to create something, you know, and something that represents the internal universe, how we feel inside. That's kind of like the whole idea of art, right? You're projecting how it is you interpret the world around you and what you perceive to be real. So it's like with different strains of psilocybin or psilocybe mushrooms, right? Because like there's different strains in the, within the genus, right? Like the genus is psilocybe and there's like 203 of them. So it's like, just like psilocybe mushrooms has a bunch of different strains. Cannabis has a bunch of different strains and each different strain of cannabis will have its own cognitive effect. Terpenes hit everybody differently. Every, every plant has its own unique ratio of alkaloids, although it has these primary constituents. Same thing with psilocybin. So it's like, for, for example, wavy cap cyanescence. It's a strain of psilocybe mushrooms. It grows in the Northwest. It grows also in the UK and it grows kind of around the world in kind of tempered areas and kind of colder places. And it grows from alder trees. It's, all, it's oftentimes found in wood chips and mulch and landscape. It's a mushroom that has its own unique strain and effect. And I had had an experience with them and I had found that what I wanted to finger paint was a heart and it sounds so ridiculous but I wanted to make a finger painting of a heart and the reason why is because I felt as if I truly loved being in this existence and being it itself as if I could feel being alive and being connected to others to just being and I wanted to project how that felt on the inside. And it just felt warm and loving and caring. And that was just a particular species or strain of mushrooms. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's just one experience. I've had several different strains of psilocybe. And I find they all have their own kind of effect. Or everybody kind of says, like, you know, psilocybin has its own message, right? It's got that one kind of message or whatever. I, I kind of disagree. I feel like it's like got this effect. And each species has its own kind of message. And it's got kind of like this own thing it wants you to do. Some of them want you to finger paint. Some of them want you to just meditate. You know, sounds kind of strange. Mm -hmm. Like Slossoby as a resonance. I made a finger painting of a dancing man. That sounds really weird. I made a dancing man. And it's like, it's a really psychedelic finger painting. Mm -hmm. And it looks, you know, kind of like a blur. But to me, I, you know, I know what it is. The dancing Azzy man. Like when people take psilocybin, they should do tribal things. They should try to get in touch with their roots, where their heritage lies. And I feel like the language of art is the deepest of heritage. You don't need to know, like you don't need to know uh, where your true blood heritage comes from, right? If you know the language of art, you could find your own heritage. You could find your own within you. You know, you could find what what kind of person you are, or what what you feel as if your kind of ancestors have genetically left you, you know, what's kind of deep, deep rooted within you as a being, as a conscious, unique entity in this space. And you get to use the language to project an image, to share with other people, to teach them, you know, what it is, this message you have to say, you know? So it's like, is that real or is that not? I don't know, but it seems pretty real to me, you know? So it's is real art. That's why. I like the way you say language of art because I feel like in Jungian psychoanalysis, I 
translate language of art as unconscious, collective unconscious, because collective unconscious is basically all the cultural, historical to a certain degree, and also psychological at a very broad level, archetypes embedded in each one of us. Yes, you might have a different archetype, or like you might be able to recognize maybe Christian Roman symbols more, or archetypes more. I would be able to recognize more of the Eastern ones, but we all um, have a very primitive level, you know, these archetypes. And those court those- definitely recognize them, right? It's like you like when you say recognize, do you mean like identify with like the name of what it is? You know what I mean? There's a uh, a psychedelic compound that's called dimethyltryptamine, and it's known to reveal religious symbols and archetypes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I myself, I haven't seen very much uh, Western symbolism. I've seen a lot of Eastern symbolism, but that's the thing. I can't particularly recognize it. And it sounds so strange, right? To be able to sit, try to uh, proclaim, right? You've seen symbols of a different land, right? Without having have been to that land. I'm a, I, I was relatively certain a particular symbol, right, is from a, a, like, say, the East, right? All I know is that that came farther from the East. I've had a uh, sort of a, a, a brief DMT experience where I saw, like, I'd call them Buddhas, right? But it's just like a figure of a person meditating, right? And it's like a pattern of them, you know? And it's like, yellow and green but it's like metallic you know as if it's like gold and like some other metal and it's like it's like a beautiful jade green and this beautiful pristine yellow gold and they're like up upright and upside down making like a triangular pattern and it's like with depth the three dimension and it's like why would i see that being a westerner you know it's like i i don't particularly believe i've had enough eastern influence to like see something like that i I kind of feel like certain substances show us what kind of is within the collective consciousness, you know, as if it's something we can kind of tap into. That that just kind of like makes me question it, you know, like why is there a clash between Western and Eastern philosophy when all philosophy is really just the philosophy of man and what comes out of the human mind as us as a species, as a being, as an entity, not as like, you know, like, people from lands or any sort of separation or division you know like that's just how i see it it's it's quite interesting because like uh you know how there's this i don't know if it's a conspiracy theory or if it's a if it's for real um but jesus christ was also had also visited india in the very north region called kashmir and i i feel like there might be like two you know feet feet prints and so I feel like they've converted that into a church somewhere in Kashmir. It's interesting, like, you know, you could find all sorts of archetypes embedded in all sorts of cultures. All yeah. Because maybe we're so digitalized and globalized, but still, you know, there's this question of having a psychedelic experience and seeing Egyptian, you know, pharaoh hieroglyphic imagery in your hallucinations. How could you see that if you're not from Egypt or if you've never been in a, like, you've never, like, ah, you've just never been exposed to that actual three-dimensional object in space. Like, you've never truly been exposed to that consciously, you know? I feel like just having had seen some form of symbolism, like, some point in time, like, saying I'd scroll on your phone and seen a couple Egyptian symbols, I don't think that's going to trigger, like, a series of like 10 to 30 plus like intricately designed 
geometrical symbols that like appear to be some sort of symbol and it's like you, you like you go throughout like you go to try to project or what happened in your like psychedelic experience right and you're like describing this entity or this space or this object to someone someone you know it's like i i had a dmt experience that i seen some particular egyptian phenomenon, phenomena i should say and like i uh i told my friend about it i said i don't know what this being was but it was like 2d and it was on a, these big ass intricate doors that seemed like they were really grand and like 40 feet tall and like like i was in line with a bunch of people and we were all kind of floating off the ground and i got to my point in line but i never got through the doors i just got up to these doors and i saw like these these beautiful silver and gold pools on the side when i look on the doors there was this entity with like a jackal face you know and this small like rod in his hand and there was two of them facing each other and as I described this to my friend, you know, and I'm like telling him of the doors and the colors on the doors and like how they both had these half, like an arc and inside the strip of the arc were all these symbols like intricately painted like silver and gold. And like, he's telling me like, oh, like a jackal, like, you mean like Anubis? And I'm like, what? What's Anubis? And he, he Googles it and he shows me a picture. And I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, like, I cannot believe you're showing me like a picture of something I had seen in my own personal psychological trip. So like, how could you be doing that? You know, like that's a real thing. You experience DMT, it's so much information and it's like such a, such, such a profuse amount of data. You can't particularly absorb every single symbol and every single thing. So you can only get these particular details that stand out oh so well to you as a unique consciousness in your experience. And only what you can really absorb. So it's like I couldn't draw all these symbols, but like there's just a handful of them that I could really remember. And it's like they were like things that were out there on the internet. You could like look them up. So does that mean that like in my psychological experience that I had perceived just subconsciously all this subliminal information so many times, so so much that I saw that? I don't know. I don't particularly feel as if I have seeing how i live in montana and all the people i know are either like living in a city or they live on a ranch and they have cowboy boots and a cowboy hat you know what i mean like i don't see where i could have been exposed to eat like egyptian like symbolism you know like that's just my perception of it. yeah no uh -huh. remember the we had that moment remember when i told you that was hand of history when you were describing oh yeah yes that was like the most that blew me away dude you were like tripping me out there i was like I, ca I can't believe there was like an actual thing it's like me as a regular person i'm like comfortable saying it on a recording because like i've been to a uh, professional and everything i'm um i have high functioning autism i'm just a regular person you know i'm just like i can like drive and talk and have conversations and i can like functionally go on a podcast it sounds ridiculous but uh um, it's like not everybody who's high functioning can do those things you know there's high functioning people who can't even talk but you know they're still high functioning it's called sometimes Asperger's and all that but uh, what I was describing is that my whole life uh, I've had this really serious problem and obsession with these five questions ever since I was very young and it is a uh, who what why how and when and I felt as if someone could answer me these five questions. If you could put a problem in my palm, then I could answer any problem. I could solve any problem because I had answered all five of these questions. And I had to figure out a way 
to answer those five questions. And as I described that to you, you were telling me about this really awesome palm. Emma, would you please articulate that to like the audience? It's called the hand of mysteries. Or the, I think it's also called the philosopher's hand and has like five different symbols worked out. Yeah, it's, that was crazy. Oh, awesome. That's like some Morphic Resonance stuff, you know? It's like a coincidence, but what's really a coincidence, you know? Like, how do we know what coincidences are? Come on. It's really funny that, like, that's like a, the philosopher's hand. And it's like, to me, as just a being, a conscious being, a conscious human, I felt as if this was just the thing. This is the dilemma. Everybody should have this in mind, and nobody else did. And I was the only one, like, trying to tell people, like, dude, if we can, like, figure this out, and we could solve anything, anything, and it'll be all right. So it's like, well, then we could like have any problem come our way, and we'll continue to like answer those problems and like solve, like find that actual viable solutions, you know. And that kind of comes into philosophy, doesn't it? Isn't it like philosophy is like just the biggest of problems or the biggest of questions that are always unanswered because we don't know how to answer them or we don't have a way to prove them, you know? So it's like, it's just really profound how like that's the that's the philosopher's hand you know and it's like that's just a thing it's just an archetype in my mind so i feel like it's an archetype in everyone's mind you know it really should be well, at least i would think so and in my opinion it's like everybody kind of is art you know because it's like what is art you know like <laughs> what is art and it's like that language right and it's like we're made of it so it's like every pore of our skin is a is a dot, it's a circle, and it's like every curve of our face or our hands or our limbs is an arc. You know, it's all an arc. So it's like we're all dots and arcs. You know, and it's like you can go throughout nature and find all those five shapes, and it's like that's what we make art out of those five shapes. So it's like if those five shapes are what art is, then it's like are we as a being, as a as a being in creation within existence, right? not already a piece of or a work of living art you know and is not just being within existence the act of living artistic you know what i mean like right. is that not poetic and like within expression or expressionist i should say mm -hmm. i feel like it is just living itself i feel like just being a being and going through existence itself there's a type of art to it like there is an art to living sociality and normalcy it's it's a like i've never like i come from like a small town right and it's like being somebody who is like high functioning it's like being in social interactions is particularly overstimulating so like seeing people go through their life you know and like achieve the their goals it's like muster up enough ego and determination to say like they're gonna do a particular thing and not only do they do that but they like they go above and beyond that and they like make make an image or a self or like like make them or build up their character i should say build up build up their image of self and who they are off of their actions and what they've accomplished i'm not, to me that's like astounding to witness because it's so overstimulating to just for me to just kind of like be to like that when we just wake up it's like wow like just per my perception of awareness and my personal opinion feels somewhat overstimulating but it's always mitigatable as with everybody that's how we're all conscious in here through the day you know what i mean because like we're all living i'm a 
so I feel like there's kind of an art to it because it's we're made of it you know we're made of that language I don't know. it just depends on how it's oriented right I feel like we only feel like it's art if a person a conscious person expressed it right but it's like every being is like a product of other beings right so it's like are we all not a product of the expression of love or like you know the every so ever so existing archetype that is art right like we're all a product of an expression and art is human expression you know like art is human expression through the language of art so like when people become a tattoo artist it's like they really put a lot of training and effort into it I'm a, for the longest time, I wanted to be a tattoo artist, which is really funny. And there's actually a tattoo parlor here in my town. And they're, called the, they're called the Steel Paintbrush. Then I went in there and uh, there's a lady who runs the shop. She's a really, really awesome artist. I'm a, I can't remember her name specifically right now because there's like several of them who, who like run the shop. But they had this really awesome, like it was just so profound to me because when I, when I went in there, it was already overstimulating enough, right? Like, cause it's like a parlor, you know? And there's like a bunch of people and they are, they're all tatted up and they all got art. So they are a canvas and you want to look at all their art, but it's also like weird. Cause it's like, then you're like, you're kind of like checking out this person, but you're also like, you're not trying to be like that. You're just like, I don't mean to check you out in that way. You did this, you got all the art put on you. You make me want to look at you cause you are a canvas. Come on, bro. Like you look awesome, you know? So it's like, and then it's like all the walls are covered with tattoos or potential images, you know, it's like, it's so cool. But they had this $3,000 drafting table. And I remember this drafting table so much. And it was the most awesome and magnificent artist tool I'd ever seen because it had this light in there. It had this really awesome, adjustable, really big table. And it had all these little clips for all your pens. And it's like, it had this light and you could turn it on. And it's like, so when you put, you could do tracing and stuff to like make sure you put, like tracing for your transfers, right? So it's like, like you take an image that you drew on paper and you put your transfer paper on it when you're a tattoo artist. So that way, when you take the transfer paper, you put it on the person and it, you know, will adhere to their skin. So you have an outline, something to start off with when you go for the scarification or for the tat, you know, mm, tattoo. <laughs> for like someone to be a artist of any kind, it takes several years of dedication, you know? And I feel like that goes for any school of art. You know, it doesn't matter what you do. You could be making clay or tattooing people or like knitting sweaters, you know? Maybe uh, archetypally I might have one thing up here somewhere, you know, that I might most resonate to, but at the same time, I feel like it's a journey to find it and I'm still on it. I, I've been thinking about getting a tattoo, but I just have no idea what I would get. And it's like, it really is a journey to find what you would get, right? Because it's got to be a symbol that speaks to you. And you were talking about respiratory stimulants effects. Okay, so like the, the lysergamines or LSD has, has a respiratory stimulant factor because it was invented to treat respiratory depression, cluster and migraine headaches, and ADHD. I'm a, so it's like... It, it does all these th three things particularly well. And when people have respiratory depression or like asthma, right? Or like, say, even if they were suffering from like bronchitis or something at the time, if they take a respiratory stimulant like LSD, even like 25 micrograms, 50 micrograms, like even a low dose like that, it'll actually have a medicinal, you know, effect for 12 hours that will breathe really well. And that's always really nice when people have respiratory depression, you know, like they, uh, what's so interesting is that how it's like how it affects our organization right 
I think acid's really interesting how it affects organization because it's pertaining towards pattern perception. It's not pertaining towards movement perception. And movement is a pattern, right? But it's like movement is a is a abstract pattern. Movement is a very abstract thing. And psilocybin increases our perception towards abstraction, such as movement. Psilocybin increases our perception towards abstraction, like movement. And lysergamines increases our perception towards organized patterns or patterns such as organization. And it changes it towards like an even rate, you know? They, uh, they, so it's like, not only does it treat as like, you know, respiratory depression and it works when people actually have asthma um, or any, any sort of respiratory depression because it's a respiratory stimulant, um, but they, the U.S. government did a study where they took autistic children, right? And they gave them lysergamines, they gave them LSD in particular dose ranges. And they found that 70% of them or seven out of 10 of the 50 is a very small sample. You know, but like seven out of 10 of them were able to come out of their autism enough to be in, in their classification of high functioning, no joke, which sounds really strange. Um, uh, and But seven out of 10 of them were able to maintain a support network around them that allowed them to stay high functioning to the degree of which they could talk and communicate and function a lot better. So it's like, and like people who have autism and even just high functioning autism have organically been drawn to lysergamines for like a long time like uh tim sully right he he was one of the dudes who made acid with uh the the grateful dead and we're trying to as walsley stanley he was he was the guy who made acid for the grateful dead but tim sully got an apprentice under as walsley stanley and Tim Sully has high functioning autism and he was organically just drawn to the substance because of how it made him feel um, uh, and, and the aspect that he felt as if he was more one and connected with everything. And that's typically people, something people report from psilocybin. Well, it's like with lysergamines, like oftentimes regular people, uh, at least most of the time from my observations, people whom do not have autism and are not on the spectrum at all, they oftentimes can become stilled, overstimulated, and as if they cannot communicate the same or as if linguistic function is lowered as if like when they speak they it's like they can only articulate these really prolific points uh, or it's like super overstimulating or overbearing to articulate their thoughts and like how they're perceiving their own thoughts is a lot and how they're perceiving their senses is a lot and what's so funny is that like people with high functioning autism and regular autism anybody on the spectrum like whom can communicate and articulate their sensitization of awareness is that their regular day-to-day -day life is already overstimulating like that, as if their own internal perception of awareness is so complex as if, as if it's hard to articulate and communicate thoughts. And it's like when people who are on the spectrum take acid, they don't get more overstimulated like that. They, they actually like get more organized and it makes it easier for them to communicate. And I myself am on the spectrum, and I have experienced this, and I experienced it a lot. Come on, that's actually why I I think acids were a truly a good medication and something that should be legalized. Come on, because like it could truly benefit like a lot of society. There's a lot of people on the spectrum who could actually use to get to a point of linguistic communication that they could talk to people and feel comfortable going outside their home on their own be able to walk to somewhere like the grocery store and do things um, uh, like 
and Mo like Montana's got kind of a rough uh, population, so to speak. Um, uh, there's a good bit of people in Montana who have a sort of psychological, uh, or, or pardon me, what's classified as a mental illness, um, uh, whether that's being on the spectrum or having some sort of actual, like, uh, like say bipolar disorder or something like that. There's like a large percentage of the population, I think it's like 40% of the population in Montana has like some sort of mental illness. So it's like, uh, like a lot of that, you know, like, I, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but for like autistic people, but I know, I, I know a handful of like high functioning people and, but most people I know who are high functioning, I'd say like about six out of 10 of them that I've met are, that have high functioning autism. They don't talk the same as like I do. I mean, there's like very few people who like talk the same. And I myself, it took me a long time to be like able to, to consciously decide to like, articulate my own thoughts and sensitization in a manner which I could have linguistic communication, like a regular conversation. It was like almost incomprehensive or inconceivable to me to like sit down and talk to someone, anyone. I'm like, it was nuts. I'm like, like, so like me having my first ever LSD experience, I think at the age of 17, like the first time I was able to like calm down, sit still and feel organized in my mind and feel as if I wanted to talk to people and that when I talked to people, it was calm and fluid and that I made sense and that I, I didn't feel as overbearing. I felt as if my senses weren't overstimulated, but just organized. I'm a, and I, I, I was always really astounded because it's like, um, as you know, you just from talking to my, my buddy Brody, just people like that, right? It's like, a lot of people who whom are not on the spectrum when they take LSD they experience an overstimulating experience right but when people are on the spectrum they can be overstimulated from the experience it's just not the same it's like almost as if it refines their function towards normalcy and it's beneficial like cognitively and socially and communicatively come on I think uh psilocybin though is really prolific because like it's it's amazing to see that there's a substance that reduces fear right like something that lowers our fear response i think that's amazing and also it's like when you look at the comparison of like acid and psilocybin it's like a fungal coin it's like acid it causes muscle tension right and it's, it also it kind of increases like the distribution of self or ego or the default mode and when they looked at MRI scans of LSD, they found that it's an even distribution of blood flow throughout all hemispheres. And when it comes to psilocybin, it's a reorientation of blood flow within the hemispheres, right? So it's like, and it's reoriented towards the amygdala and they're like in the visual and the language cortex. So it's very different. And uh, psilocybin relaxes muscles, you know? It's like psilocybin reduces ego. Well, lysergamines increase ego and lysergamines like uh, increase muscle tension. And what so I, I believe it's from India actually. There's like kind of a it's a kind of like a guru or a, a India Indian representation of ego as being a, 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 by definition a tightness within the muscles. You know, ego is a type of muscle tightness. So that's like and that's kind of like a yogic thing, I believe, because you know, like the whole idea, you know, like with the yogis, like like by stretching right it's like you're trying to like rel relinquish ego within your muscles you're trying to let go of muscle tension ease it out like the whole idea of meditation meditation is that you're finding stillness through self-discipline right through your breath 
and you're trying to kind of let that go, you know, trying to achieve these altered states of consciousness, but through the state of consciousness that you're in, just within your state of existence, you know? So it's like, I, I believe it's like a yogic thing, definition of ego, it's like by being muscle tightness. And I, I heard that from, I think, I think I heard that from like Ter Terrence McKenna and I believe also Ram Dass. So I'm not sure, you know, those, those are Western guys, so I don't know, you know? <laughs> I do know that when it comes to psilocybin and lysergia mines, they are truly two different sides of the coin. And some people need other things. You know, I feel like if we were to do MRI scans on people, right? Like say, for instance, people were on the spectrum and I want to like, I think they should compare those MRI scans to people who are on under the influence of high dose and moderate doses of psilocybin and lysergia mines. So we could see if people, because in my opinion, it seems as if if people who are on the spectrum are oftentimes overstimulated in this strange, overbearing way, it seems to me as if you, conceptually someone, although it's like psilocybin kind of reduces fear and anxiety, someone could have like a psychological wiring that's more similar to like the psilocybin, right? Just organically, that's just kind of the flow. So when you take lysergamines and you have this even plasticity, all of a sudden it's like you get in touch with this default mode and you can kind of establish these default skills, which you kind of needed to be there, but had no actual access to, to before, to like make set defined hard programmings and psychological wirings. That's like a, a reliable circuit you could always go back to. Come on. It seems as if a lot of people I've met who are on the spectrum don't really have those the same, you know, it's as if it's this constant kind of dissolution of this reliable default circuits like psilocybin, you know, like that. Come on. And uh, the psilocybin experiences of people know can be particularly overstimulating in like the most overbearing of a way. I'm a, and it's like it dissolves our boundaries, specifically the default mode. So I think it'd be a good experiment for people to do to compare people on the spectrum and different parts of the spectrum and their MRI scans with people who are under the regular people who don't, who are not on the spectrum, who are under the influence of psilocybin, and then compare the people who are not on the spectrum, right, with their regular brain scan to someone with whom it is on the spectrum and their brain scan on lysergamines and see where the balance is out, right? Because I feel like it's astounding to see an actual result that people who are on the spectrum that take a lysergamine, they become more functioning as if they're becoming cognitively normal from this experience, from this type of conscious organization, from this alt mind-altering substance. And then people who are like, uh, so as we say, normal, right? Regular people whom are not on the spectrum, right? When they take psilocybin, right? It's like it dissolves all these boundaries which they already have, and they're really accustomed to this default mode. You know, I'm a, I just think it'd be like kind of a good thing to see to see it, where it brings people cognitively, because it could be the potential that certain doses of psilocybin or even lysergamines, right, to people who are whom are not on the spectrum, brings them to like the state of blood flow, right, that people are in when they're on the spectrum, the state of overstimulation and conscious perception, should I say, within the mind at least. And it have some sort of just observable evidence of that. That's just the whole idea of the MRI, you know, just to see it. Well, just to have a cheating.
my favorite substance uh, would probably have to be like, although Lysergiamine is something that I'm particularly drawn to because it's very healing to me. It's something that's actually brought me a lot farther in my life than probably any substance ever has, I'm a, I, of any substance I've ever encountered. The, the two substances that have brought me the farthest and like cognitively and altered the course of my life and how I act and how I even literally talk like I'm talking right now I'm a, have been lysergamines and psilocybin or psilocybin I'm a, and I find different strains of psilocybin mushrooms hit very differently and, a, and like in a good way and a bad way like some strains are actually more applicable than others I'm a, and it sounds ridiculous right but it's like sometimes the more potent the variety the, then the less you need come on oh yeah i saw that <laughs> it's okay i know it's okay it didn't come with the with the thing uh what do you call that with the actual screw i just like chose like a pin you know how you put pins on the oh yeah like a thumbtack or a nail yeah, yeah, yeah. now i'm gonna fix it at some point it's okay Oh, good. That's all right. Uh, I just got like my tents behind me. I'm sure my tents look way worse. At least you're like in a normal like living room environment. I would have been in the living room, but there's people like watching a movie right now. So, yeah. but uh, like, I uh, I don't know. I feel like uh, the the DMT analogs are super important, and psilocybin is that. And psilocybin has all like psilocybin mushrooms have all these different alkaloids in them that we haven't even isolated and classified yet. But we know we're there and i feel like different species have this these are such unique alkaloids that they're super prolific like psilocybe acerescence like i live so far from that from where they grow oh my gosh it's 710 miles it's like over a 12-hour drive for me to arrive to where they just live where they exist and it's like i think it's worth it to go take pictures of them um uh, because it has this particularly amazing alkaloid that causes paralysis and i think it's a i think it's an alkaloid because when you wash off the fruits it's like it still gives you paralysis if you eat enough of it and i think that's got its own message and vibe and effect and i think uh the paralysis is like a dmt stillness as if it's like something that's trying to tell you like this is so prolific like you and anybody else who consumes this fruit like you need to stop and give this, this give this your time you need to give this place this moment your time you need to like be still and be present and see see where you can go with this, what you can obtain, what knowledge you can, you know, truly obtain for self, you know, and apply act at the end of this. Come on. And also, psilocybe uh, as a resonance is the only only philosophy I've consumed, and I've seen closed-eyed visions of being other species. Like I had a vision where I closed my eyes on a couch where I was sitting at in my ape form, right? Uh, pardon me, my uh, my higher hominid form, right? And uh, I closed my eyes and I was an ape, or no, I was no longer an ape and I was an elk. Pardon me, <laughs> I was no longer an ape and I was an elk and I was in the same dunes of where I was picking this mushroom. You know, and it was almost hypnagogic, but not at all, because I was not the same species. And I was an elk laying on my back. And uh, elk don't really lay on their back. They kind of lay on their side, or they lay on, like, you know, like, on their on their legs, you know? I'm a, 
so it's like it was kind of a strange perspective because I was like laying down and I could see my hooves, like my undulated hooves, and I could see all the fur on me that was my coat. And it's like I was looking out at this bay, at this lagoon. It was just like so amazing because I felt as if in that moment, like I ate these mushrooms from this one mycelial mat, right? Because they're fruits from mycelial mat. And the mycelial mat's like the tree, right? Like you pick an apple from a tree. It's like the fruit from the tree. And the tree is still there and it'll be there for years to come. So it's like this mycelial mat produces these fruits. I pick my fruits from this mat. And uh, I ate them at a certain day, and I feel as if at that certain day, at that certain time, right? And it's such a such a psychedelic statement, but like there was an elk at this patch of mycelium and ate fruits off of this patch and stayed there at that patch and nested there, and I ate my fruits that came from the same mycelial mat on the same day, and like coincidentally on like the same day, and like. I, in for a moment, could close my eyes and see what this elk is seeing right now, because we both ate fruits from the same organism, from the same mat, or from the same tree, right? And, like, I felt as if that elk in that moment could see through my eyes what I was seeing in my space as, as me, as this animal, you know? And it made me feel really connected with other animals in nature a lot deeper. In like the weirdest of way. And after this experience, right, after seeing through the eyes of this animal, did I come to the conclusion, dang, I have to go and I have to go hunt an elk. You know, I have to, I have to go do that. Like I need to do that. And it sounds so ridiculous, right? Because it's like I just saw through the eyes of this animal. And it's like me having had seen through the eyes of this animal made me feel and understand as if it's all right to see other animals in the animal kingdom eat other animals. It's a part of the system and what's going on and ecosystem. And like me being a, a predator on this planet, like, and that being a, an animal of prey, I, and like something that was like a revered thing amidst my, and so to speak, tribe or family, right? My, my family line. Like, it's like something that, that, like, it's like a coming of age or coming of manhood thing, right? You have to have, like, gotten an owl. And it's like, I was, it was really funny because after I had this, like, epiphany, oh, man, I need to, like, you know, like, like, not just start eating meat again, but I need to, like, go hunt. I need to go hunt animals, like, and, like, with my family. And I need to, like, learn more about, like, like, my heritage as, like, an animal is the animal I am because I don't understand what animal I am. And like me with my lack of understanding throughout my life and being autistic, I, I rejected my family and my heritage and the aspect that like I couldn't communicate with them. And I didn't, I, I thought it was so overstimulating when we went hunting. because it was like, we had to kill this thing, you know, and bring it back and like, you know, like process it. I'm a, it was like super overstimulating, you know? And it's like, I just thought, well, dang, you know, it's like, I'll just like stay in the garden the whole time. And just like, and eventually I became a vegetarian, you know? So I learned you could do that, you know, and it's like after seven years, you know, I actually started to have like, cog like, like not cognitive, but physical backlash, like actual health decline. And I was eating particularly well, probably better than almost any Western vegetarian I know, that's for sure. Because I was like living off of like good dark greens, really, really, really good colorful plants, like lots of purple plants. 
I'm a, but like never enough plants, you know, never enough of the right things, never enough of the right amino acids to build the proper proteins. So it's like, uh, I just eventually decided it's like after this one journey, after this super profound trip, and it wasn't just like any old like philosophy as a resonance trip. It was like a serious trip. It's like, so it's like, that's the thing about the Kalindi experience, right? Like Kalindi is like, uh, like 14 to 35 dried grams of cubensis. Well, five dried grams of azorescence has 30, 350 milligrams of psilocybin in it or 35 grams of cubensis. And like, there's this thing, as you know, called NMAOI, which increases the absorption of substances. And there's a serotonergic one, which is MAOIA, and there's a dopaminergic one, which is MAOIB. Well, Syrian rue has MAOIA or harmalis and harmaline. So I took 240 milligrams, and it just takes 140 milligrams for, for full MAO habition, by the way. I took 240 milligrams of MAOI, Syrian rue hydrochloride extract. And then I ate two dried grams of turmeric in capsules, and I ate uh, two half gram capsules of decarbed cannabis for an edible to go with that. And I ate those first, and then 20 minutes later, I ate five dried grams of psilocybe as a recipe. So it, it was like I ate 35 grams of cubensis and I also took an MAOI, you know, mm -hmm. I'm a, and it, I had this really intense and prolific experience and it lasted for like eight to 12 hours because I took an MAOI. So it really lasted a little bit longer than the typical mushroom trip. But uh, after that experience, it like totally changed my life and like how I go about my life. And I knew like that, that couldn't have just been it, you know, like I felt like it, as a species, as an organism, as a, as a species within the genus philosophy, it had more to teach me, it had more it could reveal to me, even if it's just knowledge within my own mind, it had more deeper things to reveal to me within 12 hours than any acid trip or any other substance that invented or modified, even semi by man ever could. Because it was a fruit right out of the ground, right ready, and an organic organism that's its own strain with its own alkaloids, its own teaching. So I decided like next year, I'll go pick some, you know, I'll go pick more. I'm up. And I and I did, you know, just this year, you know, it was, it was really funny. The picking was kind of slim, but it was also kind of better. Uh, Oregon's just, just recently, Oregon and Washington, uh, like Washington hasn't done it, but Oregon just decriminalized all drugs. So it was like, as of like July 1st, it'll be like, all drugs will be decriminalized. So they'll be working on uh, like working with addiction, you know, like addiction treatment and how, how we go about addiction treatment. And I feel like it's a good thing. I, for a long time, felt as if all states should have all drugs legalized. And it doesn't particularly mean I think we should endorse selling all drugs. Because like, for instance, like right now, we already legally sell meth, right? Because of Adderall and Ritalin. And like those, it's like dextroamphetamine. It's like literally just literally meth. It's like one, it just converts into meth in people's bodies. So it's like, just because it's cleaner doesn't mean anything. It's still going to be just as hard on someone's body because it's meth. It's going to be degrade our, our health. So it's like, and a lot of dopaminergic substance really degrade the health. So it's like, I, I myself don't, don't do really any dopaminergic substances. I'm not like, I, I like the idea of like mescaline as like a psychedelic substance, but it's also like, I, I'm still very weary of trying it because of how strong it is on the dopaminergic side of things. I'm a, so it's like, I've always just stuck to like a lot of the classics. I'm a, like DMT and LSD and psilocybin. 
but I felt like psilocybin was really where it was at. It has the most profound of teachings, like especially when it's like you build a relation with an organism, like you you find a species that you you know that you can identify, and you go out and you find it. This is like about the journey to going to it, to finding it, to going within a, a new place, within a new ecosystem, you know, to discover this thing. So it's like you could like collect its spores, you know, collect its seeds, you know, and like try it, you know, and like potentially bring it home, you know. That's pretty cool, you know. I feel like it, it literally creates a plant-based relationship. Everyone has a particular compound that is fit to them, you know, and yeah. I mean, you know, with kids with ADHD, let's say, you know, not all of them enjoy taking Adderall. It's not like, you know, if you have some kind of a hormonal problem and so you get like hormones, you eat hormones every day. So it nourishes you, but it's not, not the same for them necessarily. Yes, it does, you know, make them function to a level, but methamphetamine is a very, you know, very complex compound. It's not only alertness and wakefulness, it's also insomnia. It's also feeling quite speedy inside and maybe euphoria, you know, to a certain extent. And so I feel like every single individual, every single person on this planet has one drug of choice. And when I say choice, it's as if, you know, you enjoy doing it and it doesn't necessarily harm you either. And you're yeah. functional on it, you know, to a very higher extent. Yeah. This is the one perfect psychoactive, beautiful compound that works well with my body. And acid yeah. to a certain extent. I, like for me, psilocybin, uh, because I told you I ate too many chocolates, uh, dark chocolates to potentiate the trip. And I ate the truffles in literally two or five minutes, something like that. And 10 grams, you know, and cold weather, Amsterdam cold weather, and boom, you know, like all of a sudden you're puking everywhere and everything. But I did observe this one very, you know, like perplexing thing that I had that psychedelic glow. I don't know. I just knew I had it. You know, it's 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 as if you recognize things when they happen to you at the same time. So when I woke up, I had this very positive, I don't know, just like very slightly euphoric. You know, if you take a good amount of MDMA dose, like a very, very perfect amount, like, you know, calculated with your weight and everything. And in a very proper setting and next day you wake up, you should be feeling like that. You should be having a psychedelic glow because MDMA is also psychedelic, kind of psychedelic, not, I wouldn't say it's like, yeah. psychedelic, but it does have a psychedelic property. That'd be yeah. part of it. You know? I'd say it's more of a stimulant factor and it definitely is psychedelic. And I'd say it's more borderline psychoactive just because like it's like it converts mostly into mda right you know like 70 percent conversion to mda so i'd say the mda is more psychic psychedelic than than the mdma i think the mdma creates more of a stimulant factor and may increases euphoria but it's like i've never tried it so i wouldn't know with these substances it's the dosing that's key i feel like yeah. this is the go-to thing that you need to look up whenever you try anything because a perfect amount of anything can change your life in the most beautiful and the most destructive way possible. You know, it's, it's either one. Oh of yeah. Straight up. If someone becomes careless with their dosage, you're, you're, you're in for a heavy ride, you know? 
you know, I feel like uh, I, I just really like the, the, the classic three because they're the most non-addictive. And that's why I like them. It's because, like, when you have a prolific psilocybin experience, you don't particularly wake up the next day and think, wow, like, I can't wait to, like, take such a large dose. I separate from myself and have to relearn what animal I am, you know? Like, you don't think you, you don't think you want to do replicate that every day, I should say. When, when the psilocybin's prolific and it's like you've experienced what it's like to be interspecies and you like, you have to relearn what it is to be a human and like understand your own memories and relearn your own name. It's like you don't wake up the next day and think, oh, yeah, do I want to do that again today? You know, you, you think, dang, it's like, I don't know how many months or if I'll even have the courage to do that again within the year. You know, that's kind of how it is. And when it comes to like a really prolific acid experience, it's like the afterglow is typically so perfect. You want to just ride off the afterglow for so long because you feel so good with that cognition and that placid feel as if it's easier to comprehend problems and as if your perception on patterns is so particularly even and overpowered for like such a, such a long residual period of time. I feel like it's like, always one of those things like I like to enjoy that like two and a half weeks three week period where it's like I feel cognitively improved for such a great period of time and there's just almost no need like I feel as if to to have another acid trip after that when you're at that state right where you're in that perfect space where it's like every day you wake up you you cognitively feel super neuroplastic as if you could tackle any problem and like perceive patterns really well I'm a, I feel like it's like to take another trip and put yourself in a different mindset and physical setting, then it's like, you'll change that. You know, you might change that after glow and you'll lose that, you know, and it won't have the same effect. Although you'd think because I took the same substance, right. It should have the same sort of effect, but it's like a psychedelic, right. And psychedelics are all about your mindset, your physical setting, your intentions, right. Like those have a huge play, right. And your expectation, your expectation also has a huge play. I'm a, I've seen people take the, some of the same same doses of psilocybin mushrooms and have the most entirely different experiences I have never had before in my life. Like, I can take a lot of psilocybin mushrooms and not experience what some people can take and, and experience in low doses. Like, I, I was talking to a, a buddy of mine, and he took, he took like a, I'd say about seven or eight, maybe 11 grams of cubensis. And uh, he was literally telling me, because like I, I, I went to like visit them, you know, I was like, I want to check in on them, see how they're doing, you know. And like, uh, I get there, you know, we're, we're like hanging out, we're, we're smoking weed and talking. And like, he's there and he's talking to me, you know, and he has his ego and all. But and it's like, he never separated from his ego. But like, he was describing to me the next day what happened. And he was telling me how like, he was looking out the, at the window across the kitchen table and it was as if the whole wall of the kitchen was gone. And it was just like, as if the, the whole thing became the window. And there was a several times when he would look at me and like, I'd be Morpheus and changing, like my head changed and I turned into a pirate. And one time I lost my teeth and then it like converted back. And like, I was like barely myself, but I was still somewhat me. And it's like, he's seeing this off such a, off like a little over a heroic dose. And it's like, when I take a heroic dose, I get like ego dilution and separation as if I don't know my name. And I'm like, I can like barely remember my own identity and like have contact with how I organize my hands and physical space, like, wh like how I move, how I walk. 
how I talk. It's like those are all default mode functions, you know, and I feel as if I separate from them when I take anything more than four and a half, five dried grams. And I'd never get any visuals like that. Like my visuals for psilocybin are more like sometimes slightly wavering, sometimes slightly breathing, but the visuals are relatively next to nothing in open-eyed space. And then also it depends on the species, right? When it comes to like azorescence, it's all closed-eyed visuals. When it's like even on five dried grams of azorescence with an MAOI, which is azorescence is one of the most potent species in the world, by the way. And just, it's just, you know, me personally and my psychology, but like I had barely little, like very little, if not any open eye visuals. It was like DMT. And when I opened my eyes, everything was perfect symmetry. Everything was perfectly symmetrical. And there was no, nothing happening here. I wasn't seeing like with the Kundalini thing, like Kundalini II was warned that people like you could see entities walking through the, like the space you started eating, eating the dose in because the whole idea of a Kalindi is that when you eat it in cubensis, it's 14 to 35 or 42 dried grams, you know, which is a lot. And it's like several ounces, you know, like if you, if you take a lot of them, it can be several ounces. So it's like, by the time you're done eating the bag, you're not in the same physical space. That's what, that was the whole idea. But it's like, when you eat a more potent variety, you have time, right? You like, you, you eat five dried grams of azorescence. It's equal to 35 grams of cubensis. Now you got two hours to wait, you know? And it's like when that, like, and that, it's just such a totally different experience. Like it, I felt as if it was like DMT with my eyes open and things just looked perfectly symmetrical. But with my eyes closed, I was in entirely different spaces. I was journeying through memories I had never accessed in like over a decade, you know? Like I was being different animals. I was like going into DMT spaces like that were not, not here, you know, not in my memories. I was having sensations of going out of my body and losing the awareness of my breath, like on DMT, because it was like totally, totally a DMT trip. But with the psilocybin factor of relaxed muscles, uh, the azorescence factor of paralysis, and uh, the, the psilocybin factor of no ego, when, when you smoke or eat DMT, regular NN DMT, you have your ego. It's like you, the ego, have signed up for this journey and you can go. But sometimes you can separate from ego on DMT. But when you take psilocybin DMT, right, or POHO DMT, you almost always, if you take the right dose, you'll separate from ego almost every time. And it's like I've seen so many people that I, I thought, dang, that dose would have totally separated me from my ego. And they'll eat that dose. And they will not lose ego at one point of the journey, for like the whole eight hours. They like as if their, their own default mode is so structurally sound and so well built. It takes a lot, many, many, many more milligrams, like tens of milligrams more psilocybin for them than it does for me to like separate from ego. And I also feel like that's like, that's the thing. It's kind of like one of those spectrum things, right? Like, I feel like for me, when I take psilocybin, I'm particularly sensitive. And I feel like I could take like three and a half grams sometimes. And I could get to this point where I'm separating from myself. And it's like, I could, I'm always able to come back to my name and everything. And it's not too much ego dissolution, but it's like, I'm separating from my ego for sure. And it's like an eight of cubensis and that you should know, like regular people need typically five to seven grams or like two eighths of cubensis to get ego dilution at all. And it's like, I think it's just me being particularly sensitive or it could just be me and 
how my mind works being someone on the spectrum. I'm on, and also I feel like like that's how I how it is with lysergamines. Like I could take lysergamines or LSD and like I could take 400 to 700 to 800 microns. I could take 1700 microns or 1.7 milligrams. And I could be tripping like most people do off 200 to 400 micrograms, you know? Like it's as if it increases how I cognitively function and doesn't actually make me trip like everybody else does when it comes to lysergamines. And then I could handle astronomical doses of lysergamines. And it's not like I have a really high tolerance. It's like I wait the proper time frame in between. It's just like, I don't know how I cognitively work and how a substance affects me as an individual. There was these one particular tabs that were 350 microns. And I remember sharing them with someone and they were telling me that they were visibly seeing like fractals and these geometrical patterns within open, you know, 3D space, like here, like how we see the world. And all I could tell them is that to me in my perception, the world just looks like a nice crisp oil painting as if I could perceive all patterns very well and at the right pace and that nothing's moving and nothing's different. It just all looks very well and crisp and surface reflections are at their best and I could perceive them very well. Politics and science should never mix. I feel like science is science. Science is facts, and like we can't disagree with the fact. Yeah. And if the fact of the matter is it's a flower and it's it, it's delightful to smell and inhale, then people are gonna do it. And if people like it so much that they carry the seeds of those flowers across continents and across countries, then that's what's gonna happen. You know, yeah. same I, thing with fruits. It is value. So how can you know political built-up organizations? Because we build politics. It's a theoretical model in place. Yeah. Why would politics be mis mixed with science so heavily? Because that's what's happening in the U.S. right now with the whole oh, yes. now wearing a mask. Oh, this is so convenient you mentioned that, dude. I have this right here in Reach. This is my book by Rupert Sheldrake. I don't know if I have this like clear on there. Science Set Free, 10 Pathways to New Discovery. So what's really cool about Rupert Sheldrake, right? So he's like a legit scientist and he's like so caught up about that too, how we put like our opinions, right? And like dogmas before science and before testing it, before like our actual results. And so when he talks about the 10 pathways to new discovery, there's like several points that he, he explains how there's these 10 primary dogmas in science and we take them for granted and we take them as eternal truths, right? And like how we don't actually know that these are like 10 factual things and that these are just 10 great concepts and that nobody's actually like proven, you know, and that these aren't things that we truly understand and that us as a scientific community have like gone with such a political agenda that we take these 10 particular pathways for granted and we just use it as a political agenda. And that's, and that's what's so wrong. It's like we've turned science into dogma. That's why I like Rupert Sheldrake because he can articulate that so beautifully. He could like literally take, he could like take it and and like like use religious concepts to articulate uh, like a political scientific perspective on modern times, I don't know, which which is really what it is. Like the whole book. Literally, um, I was reading this classical psychedelic book, which I'm sure you're aware of. 
Oh, word. What is it? <laughs> no. Alchemy, the psychedelic experience. It's oh, nice. I've never read that. You have to read it. I feel like as soon as you jump into this, everything's going to make sense. Like, oh, nice. No, like I had a trip and I had a very profound trip. Extremely profound. Probably the most intense trip I've had till now. I had a brief three to four hours of complete ego dissolution when I was um, laying on the and it was a very Alex Gray kind of visual geometrical fractals and patterns and tunnels I almost thought I was doing DMT I'm not even kidding like it was weird it yeah was and my whole body at the same time was there was this feeling of complete unity amongst like LSD yeah you could sense as if everything was flowing like perfectly and every every gear was burning properly you know, like it's just as if every cell divided perfectly on time, every breath equated to the perfect amount of energy and power. Yeah, that's a that's a very common experience from a good good acid trip. That's for sure. Definitely the best acid trip so far. And I remember, you know, um, questioning, you know, because like, who am I? What the hell is this? And like, what am I seeing? You know, why am I seeing tunnels and shit? Oh yeah, you see what you just did? Those those three questions are a part of the five. You see, yeah. like, who am I? Like, what am I? <laughs> like, why? <laughs> like, those three. Those are the first big three. And it's like how and when, right? And it's like it's like it just comes out of everybody. Those are like your organic five questions, and like those are the biggest ones, and they really come up during tripping. And I don't know why myself, but I I just wanted to point that out. Like, even you, even every person I've ever talked to when it comes to psychedelics. They, they, the most profound of statements and epiphanies I ever have come from those five questions. It comes from the start, like the start of the question has that one of those words in front of it, whether it's how or what or why or who. <laughs> so when I started reading this book and um, it talks about Bardo Todo, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. It's called the Tibetan Book of Death from a psychedelic uh, point of view, Timothy Leary wrote it, like rewrote it, I'd say that. And so I started going through it and it has like all sorts of, you know, it starts by describing the first part of the trip to towards the end. So it's like a, you understand what a trip is, but in a very esoteric sense, because this book is about uh, Buddhist, you know, uh, I would say Buddhist theories of esoteric states of consciousness. And so when... I was reading this and there's a part, you know, I've just like underlined, um, I've underlined, you know, a great amount of this book because when I read this book, I understood what my trip was about. Cause like when I, when my trip ended, I was just in a state of perfection, but I wasn't, I didn't know what I, what to make out of it. And so when I started reading this book and I entered the, the area of ego loss, it, perfectly described how you are so immersed in that psychedelic experience that you don't have ego anymore that you don't have any external defenses anymore you're you're a subject let's take the object to be the wolf you're you're perceiving the object but you know it's not just a very simple uh, subject object relation interplay it's much more complex because uh there's a lot of you know dimensions to it like you have your psychological factors you have your physical phenomena going on but what counts the most is the psychical uh state of consciousness that you're in 
in relation to the object or that is the world that you're experiencing outside. So it's like almost going so in that there's another out there, you know? So it's like you're going inside only to enter another inner gate. I know it sounds very abstract, but I don't know. This no, is- makes sense, man. That sounds very DMT indeed, actually. That sounds very DMT. Huh? It's quite acidy. So you know how there are things called N-B-O-M-E and bombs or whatever? Oh yeah, N-bomb. Yeah, I mean, for some time I was reflecting maybe it was an N-bomb, but I'm not really sure. Oh yeah, that's why you want reaction agents to test to make sure it's the right substance. I use reaction agents to make sure my tabs are at least lysergic, or at least lysergamines. That's to say that it could be 1PLSD or ALD52 or... LSZ or LSD, I don't know. Like, you know, it's just a lysergic analog and there's no way for me to prove what that substance is, you know, because it's not isolated in a raw, you know, crystal thing that could be like looked at and evaluated and like tested. There's not enough of it to test so many times. There's not enough reaction agents to like confirm. You need like 10 or 15 reaction agents to be like so certain, to be like 99.99% certain, you know, like, with a with a couple reaction agents, you could determine if you have lysergamines. You know, it just takes at least Elric and Marquise to be relatively certain that it's lysergamine. Um, and also it's like you gotta really like have a good trusted source, something like you really trust, because it's like, oh man, like a bad batch acid could lead to a lot of like biological health problems. Um, and like they actually have like a rating scale for the quality and purity of LSD, um, which is really strange. Um, but it's kind of cool. The cleanness is called white fluff. And then uh, the second grade to that is called, uh, you know, like orange sunshine, right? Cause it's like it's an orange. It's an, also referred to as amber. Because like the, the crystal or the substance, which just comes out as a tartrate, and tartrate means salt, it, it'll come out kind of amber. So it's an impurity content. And then like below that, right, like it gets worse, right? <laughs> like it gets worse. There's this thing called tar. And it's like such a rough, like, rough chemical base that's barely lsd right it's ergot alkaloids it's like such in a rough state it's basically black goo and it's like active but it's like not good for someone's health right and it's like that's the thing like that black tar would test on a reaction agent to be like you know proper and that black tar could be diluted enough to be laid onto sheets which is terrible because it's like it sounds like black tar like you know like people say like for other substances but it's like black, right? It's like this black goo and it's terrible because it's like, it's so much not acid. So much percentage of that weight is not pure alkaloid. And that's the whole idea with white fluff, right? White fluff being the top of the scale is like the purest, like like 99 plus percent, like pure lysergic acid diethylamide or lysergamide, whichever one synthesized, you know? It could be ALD52 or 1PLSD or anything. Or one B LSD, all all those other lysergic analogs, you know, whatever synthesized. If you if you synthesize, it should be white fluff, you know, it should be pure, a pure substance, you know. That's the that's the problem when it comes to acquiring substances from strangers, knowing it like you don't know how well refined it was. So like sometimes you could find like what's pure acid, right? But it doesn't feel all that well. It doesn't digest all that well, and a lot of people puke from it. That very well could be some amber or some tar, like acid. You know, it's just like not that pure, not made that well. And it still has all these other chemicals in it that it shouldn't be eaten because they're carcinogenic and they could cause cancer, especially when you eat them, like, you know.
Uh, even in low doses. Psilocybin <laughs> is, you know, the most, I mean, it is natural, so. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, that's the thing, like, lysergamines, you know, they're the other side of the fungal coin, you know, because lysergamines, they, they're synthesized from ergot, right? And ergot's like a, like a, you know, claviceps. It contains several different ergot alkaloids. It's got a lot of alkaloids in it. And claviceps is a is a scrolotia, so kind of like uh, the psychedelic truffles in Amsterdam. It's a scrolotia, but it's just formed in grass, right? It forms in grass tails. So it's like a scrolotia that forms in the seed of a grass, like when the grass seeds. So it's a fungus, right, that's living inside of a grass, whether it's a grain or just any variety of wild grass that tails with seeds. And it's like, it'll live inside the other organism and it'll eat off of it. And it'll like steal its nutrients from the root network, you know? And it's like living inside of this other organism, like an infection. So it's like a serious fungus, you know? And it is a fungi, you know, it's in the fungal kingdom, but it doesn't produce fruiting bodies. It produces scrolotium. And those scrolotium are what needed, or, or is what's needed to be collected for people to produce any sort of ergot alkaloids. If it's done with organic chemistry, that is, there's also what people use is called full synthesis. So they do entirely synthetic chemistry to produce these chemical constituents in order to make other chemicals. So it's like they don't use chemicals found from plants within nature and isolated that because like that takes a lot more work. So it's like psilocybin it is it, it, like psilocybin is from the psilocybe genus of fungi. And the psilocybe genus is awesome because they're fruits, they're fruiting bodies, and it's ground fruit, right? So that's where we as an animal were meant to pick that up, you know? And you just eat that straight and it's already psychoactive. It's good to go. It's pretty cool. But what with ergot, you can't just eat that or else you get St. Anthony's fire, you can get gangrene, you know, you can get really sick and like actually die, you know? So it's like no good. It needs refined and processed. And that's fine when it's processed. It's all right. They're separated alkaloids. They're modified for human safety specifically and for the benefit and of the health of, of, human, of humanity. Let's put it that way. For the benefit of the health of humanity. It's why they're refined and modified. But it is from a fungus, you know? Traditionally, it's from a fungus. It's just the other side of fungus, right? Like as if there's the, the head and the tail side of a coin It'd be like psilocybe would be the head, right? Because they produce fruits. And it's like the tail side would be acid, right? That's the other side of the fungal coin, you know? I'm on. It's just like, we oftentimes don't acknowledge it because it's like semi-synthesized, you know? I just, I just like to point it out because it's like, it's, it comes from a fungus. It's just like, we don't consume it in its fungal base, you know? You could if you wanted to. I just don't think it would be good. I don't recommend it. Like health is wealth. That's the, that's the thing about uh, psilocybe as a resence, right? Like psilocybe as a resence is a great fruit, um, uh, but it's a thing what can grow literally right next to it, coexisting within the same ground, in the same fields, in the same tree line is called uh, Gallerina marginata, or what's known as the deadly Gallerinus. And it is a little brown mushroom and it has a hegrophonous two-tone cap and it has brown spores. And it has a ring on the annulus, and it does not have these beautiful white rhizomorphic roots. And they always have brown spores, and it doesn't bruise blue because it doesn't have psilocybin. But when you're an amateur and you can't identify them, the differences, and you don't take a spore print like you should be, you know, like you could accidentally eat a deadly gallerinus when you go to pick a wood lover psilocybe. And I just think it's so funny how it's like nature, nature 
as a as a thing decided to put one ground fruit that contains deadly alkaloids next to another ground fruit that contains dank alkaloids. So it's like these dank alkaloids are beneficial for your nervous system and may eventually make you a smarter entity, right? And these deadly alkaloids, well, obviously you don't have enough time to get, become a smarter entity when you have five to seven days till your liver and kidney shut down from the deadly amatoxins. So it's like nature knows, and it's like nature did this on purpose. It put these two things here, you know, it put them there, you know? And now I don't know how much nature did that on purpose or how much that's just coincidence, right? But it seems to me to be particularly profound that almost anywhere you could find a wood-loving psilocybe, you could find Gallerinus marginata. So it's like a psilocybe cyanescence, which is the wavy cap and it grows off wood chips and stuff like in like uh, the Northwest or in the UK and all sorts of places and like in Germany and like sometimes in the Netherlands. I don't know. It's a... Uh, it oftentimes you could find coexisting within the same wood chips gallerinus marginata you know and it's just so interesting how it's like you wouldn't think it should be there you know and then it when it comes to philosophy ovioidescus you know people can find it in ohio in pennsylvania in like the united states and people could find it in the northwest and like a lot of places right and like out all the way out east and like virginia and stuff like people could find philosophy ovioidescus emma and you could also find this deadly gallerinus, you know, which is so weird. Uh, it seems like, in my opinion, there's got to be some form, and it's just a real, real opinionated statement, I know, but it's like there's got to be some form of creationism to the degree of which there's some sort of direction with what organisms are doing and their role in this plane of existence. And we don't particularly understand the grand scheme of it, but we do know when it comes to the little pieces of the puzzle that for some reason, the dank and the deadly coexist and they're they're there and i think kind of nature has them there for a reason it's smart enough ape right if you pick a deadly mushroom then that ape is no longer around so then those smart those people who weren't smart enough are no longer around and that sounds like such a real savage statement but i think it's got like nature's way of like weeding out the weak or the unintelligible or those who wouldn't make a species survive and thrive um, as like an organism, you know, and I also feel like psilocybin as a substance specifically does the opposite, right? It makes organisms survive and thrive despite its chemical actions. And what makes me say that is that like psilocybe as a resonance, it causes temporary paralysis when you consume enough of it. Um, uh, like some people can eat it and never get paral paralysis. Every time I've taken that, I get paralysis. It's kind of like intense. So it's like the with the paralysis factor, right? It's like if you are out there in the field where they're found, right? And it's like in the cold season in fall and winter they're growing. And it's like you eat those mushrooms in the field and you get paralyzed for six hours, eight hours, right? A trip. Ooh.